If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be considering Mark 14, verses 26 through 42. And I want us to look at this passage through this lens of Jesus being pressed for your pardon. He's pressed for our pardon. This is God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Lord, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but your flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we turn our hearts to your word, and without the Holy Spirit uh, giving us ears and eyes and a soft heart, that your words will fall upon deaf ears and blind eyes. Holy Spirit, we do need you. We need you to open our eyes and our ears and our minds that we would attend to the very words of God. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Food is good for the body and drink is good for the body. But thy word is good for our souls and our eternities. Would you allow us by your spirit to feast upon the Lord Jesus? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So John Bunyan has uh, written a book entitled The Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, it is the second most uh, read book in the English language according to the number of sales. And in case you have not read the book, Uh, It really is a book 
about a burden. That the book begins with a man who's reading the Bible. And the more and more he reads the Bible, a burden starts to develop on his back. And it gets heavier and it gets heavier and it gets heavier because the Bible is kind of calling him to live by God's righteous standard. And yet Christian is his name. He can't do that. And so this burden kind of comes on his back and he tries to run home and he thinks that by going home, his wife and his children will alleviate the burden, but it won't. He tries to go to sleep thinking he can sleep the burden off, but he only wakes up more terrified of the burden because he remembers from the word that judgment and wrath is coming. And unless he can escape, he will perish not only in this life, but his soul will go to hell. And so he is burdened and heavy. And then he meets evangelists and evangelists asks him, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And he says this, He says, I am condemned to die, and after death there is judgment, and I'm not ready for the first, and I fear the second. And the whole book is how will Christian get rid of the burden? He's dealing with his failure to live up. And to live into God's standard. And he sees his inadequacy and his insufficiency in and of himself. And it weighs on him. It gnaws on him. It encumbers him. We're going to look at a passage. And what you're going to see in this passage is failure. And burden. And a heaviness of soul. Have you ever felt that? When you don't live up to God's standards. When the word of God calls us to to care about certain things. To run from certain things. To delight in certain things. To avoid certain things. And to positively do certain things. And to desire certain things. When you look at the character of God and you're honest. Not when we're numbing. Not when we're minimizing. But when we're looking at the righteous character of God. And we turn inward and see our inability. How does that feel? You see, if you're not burdened, then there's a chance that you're not a Christian. Christians are heavy, that the burden, the weight of sin, that it's not to be trifled with, it does something to our souls. We feel heavy-hearted. And what you're going to see in the passage is failure. The disciples don't live up to what they profess Peter's going to say, I'm not going to deny you, and he's going to deny him. That that I think we give, we kind of skip the rest of the disciples because we know how this plays out. We know that Judas betrays Jesus for silver. And so we look at Judas as the bad guy, and we kind of give the other 11 a pass. But then when you read this passage, Jesus actually says, y'all all going to fail me. Every one of you will fall away. 
all of you, that when, they, when he needed them to, the most, they were unable to deliver. Peter will deny him. And their failure isn't only in the future, it's actually in the passage. And most of them fared well, right? Most of them were able to pick up the pieces and continue living, but one of them didn't. And it was Judas. Matthew tells us that when Judas betrayed Jesus for silver, he went back to the people who gave him money, and he was cut to his heart. And he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Take the money back. And you know what Judas did according to Matthew? According to Matthew, before Jesus was even crucified, Judas went and took his own life. Acts chapter 1 says that Judas's bowels bursted wide open. Why? It's the burden. It's the burden of failing. It's the guilt and the shame of disappointing God. It's the weight and the agony of our sin that it's pressing upon him. It's pressing upon him. It's pressing upon him so that he does what he thinks will lighten the load. He takes his own life and he doesn't live long enough to see how the story unfolds. He doesn't see that Jesus goes to a cross. He doesn't see that Jesus pays the price. He doesn't see that Jesus goes into the grave. He doesn't see that Jesus is raised from the dead. He sees none of the story. The last story he hears is failure in his mind. And he takes his life. Do not neglect what failure and falling short, and sinning, and shortcoming can do to the human soul. It hurts. It's heavy. It's burdensome. And here is what we start to see in the passage. Mark shows us that something can happen to the burden. That we don't have to carry it around. That the Lord in his goodness can intervene even in our weakness and our sin and in our failing. And he can do something with it. That's what the passage is about. You carry a burden. The good news is that it can be removed. And the first thing I want us to look at is a discouraging look into the soul of humanity. A discouraging look into the soul of humanity. That if you were here a few weeks ago, Brian preached from the passage prior to this, and it was the Passover. Notice how our passage begins, that it actually says right there in uh, verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn... They went out to the Mount of Olives. And so all of a sudden, the, the location is changing. They were in a home, and Jesus celebrated the Passover with them. But as they were ending the Passover, they started to sing a hymn. And then they went to another place, the Mount of Olives. 
Now, we don't know what hymn uh, precisely that Jesus was singing with his disciples, but we do think that, that according to other writings that he's singing the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 through 118, and it was customary during the Passover that you would drink four cups of wine, and we don't know if each person had a cup or if there was a big cup and you drank from it. We, we don't know, but you had to drink four cups of wine, and so you would drink one cup, and then you would sing the, or, or read these other psalms. You would drink another cup and then these other psalms and another cup, and finally you would get to the end. And the final one we think was Psalm 18, that as Passover ended, it is very likely that Jesus led the men by singing a line and the disciples responded by singing hallelujah. They've left the house. They're now in the Mount of Olives. And something happens when Jesus gets to the Mount of Olives, he delivers the bad news. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The I right there is God himself. God himself says, I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And notice what happened. Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And notice what happens. And all the disciples said the same thing. So now you got incongruence. You got Jesus saying, hey, I know scripture and I know what God has promised to do. He's going to strike me. And when he strikes me, you're going to be scattered. But you guys, you tell me you're not going to be scattered. You tell me you will stay with me and even die. And do you see the incongruency? Jesus is saying, I know what's going to happen. And yet here is what you're doing. You're telling me it's not going to happen. So I think what happens is the bar is lowered. There's tension. I'm going to be striked and you're going to deny me. No, we're not. No, we're not. All of us. And then the scene changes again. And then they get to Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that the, the hour might pass. And he keeps coming back saying, hey, I don't want you to die with me. All right, let's lower the bar. Let's lower the bar even lower. I got, I got three imperatives, and these are all commands in the Greek. They're all imperative. Jesus says, I want you to sit, and I want you to watch, and I want you to pray. Sit, stand, watch, pray. It can't get easier than that. I'm not asking you to go die on the cross. I just want you to sit, to watch, to stand, and to pray. And where is it all happening? In the garden of Gethsemane. Haven't we heard this language before? Wasn't God kind of in a garden somewhere else? And he gave them a really seemingly simple command. I'm not asking you to, to hang the moon. 
I'm not asking you to travel the whole earth. All I'm asking you to do or commanding you to do is to eat of every tree that you see and to not eat of this tree right here. And here you have God himself giving another command, a series of easy commands. Just sit, stand, watch, pray in the garden. And what happens? They go to sleep. Not just one time. <laughs> Maybe it's the wine, right? <laughs> Maybe they had like four glasses of wine and they're like, Jesus, we kind of lit. No, not, not literally lit, you know. But maybe it's the meal. Maybe it's the wine. They can't even stay awake. This is a window into fractured and fallen humanity that when God himself gives us these commands, we don't live into them. This is our fallenness, our brokenness. And I actually think they actually know that they should not abandon Jesus. I think they actually feel like this is a loyal thing to do. I actually think they feel confident in their ability. All of them are saying, we will not do that. But they simply can't make good on the promise. All it takes is Jesus to walk away and they snoozing. When dudes show up with weapons, now they run. And all it takes is just a little, and everything they know is out the window. We're getting a window into our brokenness. It's the flesh. It's the body of death that we carry around with us. It overpromises. It underdelivers. It boasts in what it can do, and it always falls short. That it can't even do the simple things that God asks us to do. Go forgive your neighbor. Well, how many times I got to forgive him? For what? That they have had the Passover with Jesus. They have watched Jesus raise the dead. They have heard the most eloquent and most logical sermons ever preached because it came out of the very mouth of God. They've been in the orbit of God's presence. And despite it all, look at verse 38. Jesus says, the flesh is weak. It's weak. It, it's impotent. There's nothing good in you and I in and of ourselves that can render and live up to what God is saying. And so I think Mark is giving us a window. Let's try it one last time. Let's put some representatives in a garden and let's let them hear God's word. Let's just see if, if humans can live up. And the answer is absolutely not. And here's the thing. This is not just a window into their fractured humanity. It's a window into ours. This is why habits are hard to break. While money is hard to manage. While time is hard to steward. While forgiveness is easily received and it's hard to give. 
It's why patience is often lacking. It's why quarrels surface because everybody wants their own way amongst us. It's why peer pressure for our teens, despite a parent who births you, who feeds you, who clothes you, who prays for you, who sacrifices for you, who will lay down their life for you. It's why all it takes is another 14-year-old person that you just met this year in your ear and everything we've ever done is out the window. It's because their voice sounds louder than the people who actually care for you. That is the weakness of the flesh. Where is your weakness? Where is your flesh doing a number on you? I want you to ask somebody who lives with you, who will shoot it straight with you, someone who knows you, because I think we're blind to it at times. We need others and the word and the spirit to illumine parts of our hearts and lives that we're blinded to. And if we're honest, when we stop numbing and stop pretending, what does that do to your soul when you see the ways in which you fall short? It makes me heavy. It makes my heart ache. It makes me not like what I see in the mirror. And if you read Psalm 38, that's what David is wrestling with. He says, Lord, it's, it's my iniquity. It's my guilt. That it's crushing me. That my bones are broken, my eyes are blind, my ears are hard. That David is showing us this, this fully orbed, fully human emotional response to sin. And I don't think we're supposed to dismiss that. I think if we're alive and we're tender towards the Lord, that falling short, it should hurt us. The second thing we see in the passage is a frightening look inside the cup and a beautiful look at Christ. So Mark gives us this look, this window into fractured humanity that, that, where the flesh is weak. And then Mark points us somewhere else. He says there's a cup that awaits those who are weak. This cup language continues from the Passover. In the previous passage, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he also took a cup, which he had given thanks. He gave it to them and they drank from it. But then in verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Look at verse 39. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. In other words, in Mark 14, Jesus is praying about another cup. Now, I'm not sure how much of this is true, but as I sort of did some reading around Passover, there are four cups of wine, 
and we think that they coincide with the four promises of deliverance from Exodus chapter 6, where the Lord says, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. But in Jesus' day, there was a fifth cup, and it was called Elijah's cup. And it would be the cup at the table that they wouldn't drink because they were anticipating that Elijah would show up and Elijah would usher in the coming of the Messiah. And so there was an extra cup that nobody drank out of. It was reserved for the visitation of Elijah. And here's the thing. I don't know how true that is. But it kind of makes sense that they were right, that there's a fifth cup. But they're wrong with who's going to drink it and who that cup is for. You see, if all those promises in Exodus chapter 6 is I will remove your burdens, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will, I will, I will. The fifth cup is going to be, well, at what extent? What is it going to cost? What's in the cup? What's in the cup? I think we can look at what's happening to Jesus to discern. It's not explicit, but what's in it? Jesus' divinity is shining forth in our passage. He says, you will all fall away. I know what's going to happen. He says, Peter, the rooster, before it crows, you're going to deny me three times. And it happened. But you also see Jesus suffering. He says, my soul is distressed and troubled. My soul is sorrowful even to death. How is it that the author of life is afraid of death? He prayed that the hour might pass. How is it that the Lord of eternity is afraid of an hour? What's happening to Jesus' posture that he's walking and then all of a sudden in our passage, he falls to the ground. And in Luke's account, he walks and then he kneels and then he falls. I don't know if you've seen the strongman competitions where you see these big, strong men, and they're carrying like these boulders. And it kind of looks for a moment that he's going to make it. And they start carrying this thing and carrying this thing and carrying this thing. And before the end of it, like the thing gets the better of him, that this strong man is falling and he is whimpering because something is heavy. That's the posture of Jesus, that he comes out walking, and all of a sudden he's crawling and he's kneeling and he's falling to the ground. What is heavy upon him? I think we can look at where this is happening. Toponymy is the study of geographical names of places. It's the study of why we name certain places certain things. And so... They're transfer names. That it's, 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 it's not a coincidence that Athens, Georgia, is, is homage to another Athens. Or Ithaca, New York, it's homage to another Ithaca. Or what about Berlin, Wisconsin? Right? That when settlers get there, 
this other place is important. And so they named this new place after this other place that means something to them. We also name things and places around presidential names. 1,200 states, counties, townships, cities, and villages across America are named after presidents. Sometimes controversy is the basis of a name. Can do North Dakota. You don't know why they named it Can do North Dakota? Can do. Because there was a fight between the townspeople and the city council over who has the most power. And you want to know what the city council named the city? Can do. Because we're going to show you we can do whatever we want to do. That's how the place was named. Places are often named to celebrate positive events that took place there. Eureka, California, or Lucky Boy Pass in Nevada. They found gold there, y'all. That's why they named it Eureka. Or Death Valley, California. In 1849, during the gold rush, people died. And that is where it got its name. They also named places based on physical attributes of the place. Grand Canyon, it's like, duh, it's a canyon that's grand, right? Thousand Oaks, California, because there are over a thousand oak trees right there. It's the study of why are places named what we name them? And did you notice what Mark is doing in our passage? They were in a home, and then they went where? To the Mount of Olives. Well, I guess that's a mountain, and I guess it got a lot of olive trees on it, so it's the Mount of Olives, right? And then they get to Gethsemane. And do you know what Gethsemane means? It means the oil press. It's the place where the olives would be taken and pressed and pressed so that you and I get olive oil. You see, what I imagine is happening here is predictive typonymy has happened. Jesus gets to Gethsemane and he sees it. Olives aren't the only thing pressed here. I'm going to be pressed here. I'm going to start getting crushed right here in this place. What's in the cup that's causing the Son of God to be weary and afraid and sorrowful to get on his knees and to beg the Father that it might pass? What's in the cup that's weighing him down? It's wrath. It's God's wrath and his justice for all the ways that we fall short. That I've had the chance to go to New York and to see the national debt clock. And that clock was built, not that one, but the first one was built in 1989. 
by a real estate investor named Seymour Durst. And it was a completely nonpartisan initiative. He wanted to bring attention to the rising debt of our country. And the numbers just flick, y'all. They just roll and they roll and they roll and they roll. This Tuesday at 344, when I was at this part of the sermon looking at the national debt clock, we owe $23,444,863,900,000. And 466. And that was Tuesday. And the thing about that clock is when you're going for a run in Central Park, the clock is still counting. When you're asleep at night, the clock is still counting. When you're fixing dinner, the clock is still counting. When you go in the ground, the clock is still counting. Now, what if we could see? the debt of our sin. And not just ours, but the sins of the world. And not just those alive right now. Those alive a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. Those who will be alive 500 years from now if Jesus don't come back. That number is growing. And it's growing. And it's growing, and it's growing. And God says, I'm calling debt into account. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Take it out on me. Take it out on me. That is why Jesus is falling. That is why Jesus is pleading. And I know we've heard how martyrs die. I mean, think about Polycarp. For these many years have the Lord been kind to me. I will not betray him now. Think about the Apostle Paul. For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Think about Stephen who sees the Lord of glory and is ready. And you look at all of those men and they are not afraid. So why is Jesus afraid? He looks like a coward. But here's what makes Jesus different. Those dudes are not dying the death that he's going to die. They're dying at the hands of men. Jesus is dying at the hands of God. This is God the Father striking his own son down. This is God the Father crushing and pressing his own son. No one has ever died that death, and no one will ever die that death. He is the only one who can atone for our sins, and so he feels it in a way that no one will ever feel death. No one has died like he died. No one will die like he died. He's being pressed down by the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's the reason that Luke says Jesus sweated blood. He's being pressed. And you know what? If you're not a Christian this morning... You're just like Pilgrim 
you will die and judgment will await. And I find that if you're honest, you don't want the first. And if you're honest, you're not ready for the second. And Jesus says, Father, not my will, but yours. He steps in our place. And more than that, did you hear what he says? He says, rise, let us be going, for my betrayer is at hand. After Jesus toils and wrestles, he's the first one out leading the charge. He runs to his death. He runs to get crushed. He runs to get pressed so that you and I might be pardoned. In Pilgrim's Progress, his burden falls, y'all. He doesn't carry it around forever. It falls, y'all, and you want to know where it falls? It falls when he gets to the cross. It says, he ran thus till he came to a place that somewhat ascended, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below the bottom, a grave. And so I saw in my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loose from his shoulders, and it fell from off of his back, and it began to tumble, and it tumbled, and it tumbled into the mouth of the grave. And he says, I can't see it anymore. You want to know where your burden for your sin gets loosed? You want to know how your life can be light? Y'all don't know how good I feel right now with this off my back. <laughs> I'm up here sweating, losing my voice. This book bag, right, is just kind of pressing me down. Do you know the lightness? The lightness when all of your sins have been cast upon Christ. I'm light. I can jump. I can run. I can do, do it all right now because my burden is gone do you believe that is true for you in Christ? That when you come to the cross, that which weighs and presses you down, the guilt, the shame, it tumbles down. And he says, I can't see it anymore. I can't see it. Not with a telescope, not with a microscope. I can't see it. It's gone. That's the good news of the gospel to you and I this morning. It's gone. Christian rejoiced. It says he sang a song of deliverance. Thus far did I come laden with my sin. Nothing could ease the grief that was in Till I came here, what place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from my back. Must here the strings that bound this burden to me crack. Bless cross, bless grace, bless rather be the man that was put to shame for me. Put to shame for you. Pressed for your pardon. If you believe that this morning, you're light, you're free. Last and quick point, 
we get this one little glimpse into the future here, y'all. It's a quick and hopeful look at the future. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That is not a throwaway verse. Jesus is actually saying, I'm going to see y'all on the other side. And we're going to meet in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to cook you a meal with my betrayers. And then I'm going to send you to Jerusalem. And when you go to Jerusalem, that old weak flesh, that body of death that you carry around, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you my spirit. And I'm going to remove the heart of stone and give you this new, living, breathing, powerful heart so that even though you're burdened by sin and even though you're weak and you struggle, you can die to the flesh. And you can be made alive in Christ because I was pressed for your pardon, but I was raised for you to walk in power. May that be true for us this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we bless you. We love you. We thank you so much for taking our burdens away. May we savor that. May we experience that. May this overwhelm our joy in you. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.